This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. Remember the mid-1980s when movie songs were all the rage and owning the number one spot on the Billboard charts? Remember when the Oscar-winning songs from 1981 to 1987 all went to number one? And in 1984, all the nominees were number one hits and sold millions of records? That suddenly stopped in 1988 and continued on into 1989 and 1990. No number one songs nominated in 1988 or 1989. In 1990, we will get one number one song among the nominees, and that's it. No one really knows why the popularity of the movie song took a sharp decline in the late 1980s, but as I've discussed before, the songs just weren't selling well with the public. Many of them didn't seem made for radio play probably because they weren't sung by big-name pop stars, and a lot of them weren't in successful movies. Prince resuscitated the movie soundtrack business with his album of nine songs that he wrote for the 1989 movie Batman. That album was a departure from the normal soundtrack release, because usually only one album is created with the film score and the songs together. But with Batman, the producers released an album of Danny Elfman's score alongside Prince's song album and both were successful. None of Prince's songs got nominated for an Oscar, but that was a small issue when compared to the fact that his album sold more than 2 million copies. Seeing the success of the Batman soundtrack strategy, Warner Brothers tried to capture the lightning in a bottle again in 1990 with not two, but three soundtrack albums for the movie Dick Tracy. As filming was wrapping up on Dick Tracy, which was being distributed by Disney's Touchstone Pictures, Batman was creating a big stir, and the albums were flying off the record store shelves. Warner Brothers Records went into overdrive to fashion content for the three Dick Tracy albums. They had less than a year to figure out what would be featured on each album. On one album would be Danny Elfman's score, which would be ready by late winter 1990. The second one had songs that were not used in the movie, but were inspired by 1930s, in which the movie is set. The third album would feature three of the five songs written for the movie by Broadway legend Stephen Sondheim and others written by Madonna, but not used in the movie. The Material Girl had mixed success with movie songs, as you might remember. All of the ones she wrote in the 1980s were eligible for Academy Awards, but never nominated. The album she created in conjunction with the Dick Tracy film was a surefire way to market not only the film and her appearance in it as a lounge singer named Breathless Mahoney. The album, called I'm Breathless, had seven songs written by Madonna. Five of them were written with Patrick Leonard, her collaborator on her early movie songs such as Live to Tell and Who's That Girl. The album also featured a very non-1930s song called Vogue that became a worldwide sensation. This was Stephen Sondheim's first official movie project that involved contributing original songs, and it resulted in his first Academy Award nomination. By 1990, he had submitted his status as Broadway royalty thanks to songs he wrote for such shows as West Side Story, Into the Woods, and Company. In 
just to name three of them. Only the songs written by Sondheim for Dick Tracy were eligible for the Academy Award for Best Original Song because those were the only ones featured in the movie. Sondheim had history with producer-director Warren Beatty, writing a song called Goodbye for Now for Beatty's 1981 movie Reds that was not featured in the movie but kept Sondheim on Beatty's mind when he decided that Breathless Mahoney needed an original song or two, or three, to perform in the movie. The first time we see Madonna as Breathless Mahoney is in the nightclub owned by Lips Manless. Breathless is on stage singing one of the three Sondheim songs, called Sooner or Later, which is subtitled, I Always Get My Man. It's sultry and sexy, and you know Breathless means it when she sings, I'm gonna love you like nothing you've known. In this version, there's only a piano accompaniment, and in the film, the song gets overshadowed a few times by the sound of lips slurping down oysters. Tess, there's about as much chance of me getting behind the desk as there is of me getting a new girlfriend. Sooner or later you're gonna decide Sooner or later there's nowhere to hide Baby, it's time so I wasted in chapter Let's settle the matter orchestra arrangement of Sooner or Later comes during a raid on Big Boy Caprice's illegal gambling casino. Breathless is singing the song while Dick Tracy is serving a warrant to Big Boy. Breathless and Dick Tracy lock eyes when she sings, No one I've kissed, babe, ever fights me again. The song continues during a lengthy montage featuring Tracy capturing most of the mob's henchmen. i 
There was a report going around at the time of the film's release that Madonna didn't know who Stephen Sondheim was when she was hired for the job and refused to sing a song that she didn't write. But Sondheim was on board before Madonna was hired by her then-boyfriend, who happened to be Warren Beatty. Sondheim wrote sooner or later in a key much lower than Madonna's normal register, and she undertook some vocal lessons to make sure she could handle the harmony. Sooner or later might have been joined on the Oscar nominee list by either of the two other songs that Sondheim wrote, both of which figure mainly into the plot of the film. The Torch song, What Can You Lose, is performed by Madonna and Mandy Patinkin, who plays the club's pianist. It's performed at the perfect time in the film, when Dick Tracy and his girlfriend, Tess Trueheart, have separated. Why keep concealing everything you're feeling? Say it to her, what can you lose? Maybe it's yours, she's had clues Which she chose to ignore Maybe though she knows And just wants to go on as before as a friend, nothing more So she closes the door Well, if she does Those are the dues Once the words are spoken Something may be broken Still you love her 
What can you lose? But what if she goes? At least now you have part of her. What if she had to choose? Leave it alone. Hold it on Better a bone, don't even be him with so much to win. There's too much to The upbeat more is performed in the film during the climactic New Year's Eve party, and again in the closing credits. It's very much in the vein of the 1930s, and allows us to hear a more comedic side of Madonna as a singer. Once upon a time I had plenty of nothing, which was fine with me because I had rhythm, music, love, the sun, the stars, and the moon above had the clear blue sky and the deep blue sea. That was when the best things in life were free. Then time went by and now I get plenty of plenty, which is fine with me because I still got love, I still got rhythm, but look at what I got to go with them. Who could ask for anything more? I hear you query. Who could ask for anything more? Well, let me tell you, dearie. Got my diamonds, got my yacht, got a guy I adore. I'm so happy with what I got I want more Count your blessings One, two, three I just hate keeping score Any number is fine with me As long as it's Your account knows accounting. I got rhythm, music too, just as much as before. Got my guy and my sky of blue. Now, however, I Dick Tracy was a very popular movie in summer 1990, making $162 million. There was lots of critical praise for the movie, with Roger Ebert giving it a perfect score out of four stars. 
he didn't devote any ink to Sondheim's songs, but said Madonna's performances of them were unfortunately mimicking Marilyn Monroe. That might be true, but I think Monroe singing I Want to Be Loved by You in Some Like It Hot is comically seductive. Sooner or later, gets as sexy as the movie's PG rating will allow, but it's still more sultry than what Monroe would have been allowed to do on film. As popular as Stephen Sondheim was on Broadway, John Bon Jovi was probably just as famous in the pop music world. The band Bon Jovi had been creating hits for about seven years when its lead singer decided it was time to go solo. In the same vein as Peter Cetera's first hit single as a solo artist being an Oscar-nominated song after he left the band Chicago, John Bon Jovi's first hit single after he decided to venture into a solo career was also an Oscar-nominated song. While he was filming the sequel to the 1986 movie Young Guns, Emilio Estevez thought the Bon Jovi song Want It Dead or Alive would be great for the 1990 movie Young Guns 2, which tells the story of Pat Garrett's chase to hunt down and kill Billy the Kid. Estevez reached out to John Bon Jovi about using the song, and Bon Jovi said the song didn't fit the movie. He said Want It Dead or Alive was not a song about a man in the Old West, but a song about the band traveling on the road and meeting fans. The steel horse mentioned in the song is the tour bus, and being wanted dead or alive is the same as fans either loving or hating the band. Bon Jovi did find some value to contributing a song to the film, especially since he was a fan of the first Young Guns movie. While filming of Young Guns 2 was taking place in New Mexico, Bon Jovi went to the set with an acoustic guitar and performed Blaze of Glory for Estevez, screenwriter John Fusco, and the movie's producers. They all said yes to the song and gave John Bon Jovi a bonus by having him play one of the men killed on screen. The song has some similarities to Want It Dead or Alive, but does fit the theme and plot of the film better. The lyrics come from the point of view of Billy the Kid, and John Bon Jovi managed to even fit the title of the movie into the chorus. I'm no one's son, call me young gun. The song appears at the end of the movie when we see what happens to Billy the Kid's gang. Yeah, I'm a wanted man I'm a 
Blaze of Glory was a big hit for Bon Jovi. It was the number one song in Australia and Canada, and spent one week at number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. It brought more people to see Young Guns 2 than probably would have gone to see it in late summer 1990 without a Bon Jovi contribution. Dick Tracy and Young Guns 2 made a combined $222 million in box office receipts in 1990. That was less than half of the money that Home Alone raked in during the holiday season of 1990, all the way through to spring 1991. The movie's success was a surprise to everyone involved, and it was a star-making vehicle for the 10-year-old Macaulay Culkin. One big reason the film worked so well is the music by legendary composer John Williams, who came into the project at the 11th hour when Bruce Broden was unable to fit it into his schedule. The score is one of Williams' best non-action scores, and its main melody is the basis for the song that earned the Oscar nomination, called Somewhere in My Memory. One reason why John Williams was excited to work on Home Alone was the opportunity to write Christmas music. That included the opportunity to write two Christmas songs for the movie with lyricist Leslie Brickus. Brickus and Williams were working on songs for the Steven Spielberg movie Hook at the time, and wrote somewhere in my memory in the middle of the recording sessions for the score. If you're one of the three or four people who have not seen Home Alone, well, I'll tell you that Macaulay Culkin plays Kevin, a kid who is left behind when his family goes on vacation to Paris. At first, he's excited about being home alone, but midway through the movie, he starts to miss his family. On Christmas Eve, as he's walking home, he sees a large family gathering. A portion of Somewhere in My Memory plays as he sees the family enjoying their time together. version of the song plays in the end credits. At the end of the movie, the entire family has returned home to find Kevin safe and sound, though he's managed to clean up just about all of the evidence that two bungling burglars ransacked the house.
This was just the third original song nomination for John Williams. His first came for 1973's Nice to Be Around, which was based on his love theme for the movie Cinderella Liberty. The second was If We Were in Love, which he wrote for Luciano Pavarotti in the 1982 movie Yes, Giorgio. In addition to his original score nomination for Home Alone, John Williams had earned 28 Oscar nominations and four wins. None of those Oscar wins, though, were for songwriting. As for Leslie Brickus, he had been bouncing around from one unsuccessful project to another since he won his Oscar for the Victor Victoria song score in 1983. He had been nominated for writing lyrics to Life in a Looking Glass in 1986, but the four years until Home Alone were mostly covered by royalties from his previous hit songs. Movie projects that seemed promising turned out to be duds. Stage shows that had great songs were ruined by bad direction, and Leslie Brickus needed something like Home Alone to come along and spruce up his resume. Some of the songwriters I've introduced you to in this podcast have mysterious links to the film projects that earned them the Oscar nominations. Shel Silverstein is one of them. In 1990, when Mike Nichols was looking for someone to write a song for his movie Postcards from the Edge, Shel Silverstein was the one who got the job. There's no previous connection that I could find between Nichols and Silverstein, and it's likely that Nichols and the producers of Postcards from the Edge sent out a call for a song that Meryl Streep's character would sing at the end of the movie to celebrate a resurgence in her acting career. The song that Silverstein submitted was I'm Checkin' Out, and it fits with Silverstein's background in country music. The name Shel Silverstein might be known to most people as a cartoonist for Playboy and the writer of the poems contained in the book A Light in the Attic, but he also wrote many country songs for Loretta Lynn and Johnny Cash in the 1970s. A Boy Named Sue, which has become one of Johnny Cash's signature songs, was written by Silverstein. Perhaps Nichols liked the wit in Silverstein's lyrics, which fit perfectly in the wit from Carrie Fisher's screenplay for Postcards from the Edge. The song I'm Checking Out doesn't correlate with the plot of Postcards from the Edge, other than to suggest that Meryl Streep's character is tired of the messy relationships she was involved with through the film. It's a song her character sings while filming a music video, and yes, that is actually Meryl Streep singing with the real-life band Blue Rodeo. After the director yells cut, the band decides to play an up-tempo version of the song, with Streep joining in as the movie's credits roll. Pull back them dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Help bellboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Well I've packed my bag and I paid my bill And I'm turning in my key And if those sad souls down in the lobby Ask for me Just tell them I'm checking out this heartbreak hotel I ain't gonna live on lonely streets 
street no more, no more. I found a new love and a new place to dwell where teardrops ain't soaking the floor. So take down my suitcase and
I think the song would have done well on country radio stations, but I'm Checking Out was not released as a commercial single. Postcards from the Edge was a success, and when the music branch was combing through the list of eligible songs to find one to nominate, they surely remembered the way the song brought the movie to a rousing conclusion. The fifth nominated song from 1990 came from The Godfather Part 3, a movie that everyone really wanted to see until they saw it. It's become a punchline in many bad ways, including Al Pacino's line, Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in and the bad acting by director Francis Ford Coppola's daughter, Sophia. Despite that, the movie earned seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Original Song for Promise Me You'll Remember. The song used the melody in the score by Francis Ford Coppola's Father Carmine, with lyrics by John Bettis. Like many songwriters I've been featuring in this podcast, you probably have never heard the name John Bettis before, but you definitely know his music. Perhaps his biggest hit was Michael Jackson's Human Nature, which was featured on the Thriller album. Bettis also wrote songs for The Carpenters, Diana Ross, Madonna, Barbara Streisand, and New Kids on the Block. He won a Grammy for the theme song for the 1988 Olympics called One Moment in Time and sung by Whitney Houston. He crossed many genres in his lengthy career, and at age 44, he got an Oscar nomination writing a song for, at the time, one of the most beloved movie trilogies of all time. Promise Me You'll Remember plays during the end credits of The Godfather Part Three, and is performed by Harry Connick Jr., who was becoming the new king of movie songs thanks to his great rendition of It Had to Be You the previous year in When Harry Met Sally. Standing still 
Unlike the success he found with It Had to Be You, the commercial release of Promise Me You'll Remember landed with a thud. Connick got a Grammy Award for his performance of It Had to Be You, but his peers thought very, very little of his contribution to The Godfather Part 3. But at least the music branch of the Academy gave Carmine Coppola the chance to win his second Oscar, 16 years after winning for writing the score to The Godfather Part 2. Alan Menken was looking to win Oscar number three in just two years, thanks to being hired by the men bringing the fifth Rocky film to the big screen. Thanks in large part to the two Oscars he won for The Little Mermaid, Menken was brought on to write a song for the movie's end credits called The Measure of a Man. The purpose of the song was to encapsulate Rocky's journey from the first movie all the way to the fifth one as still images from all the previous four films are shown on screen. This would turn out to be one of the few times Minkin would write lyrics for a song instead of composing only the music. These battered hands are all you own This broken heart this turned to stone 
hang your glory on the wall There comes a time when castles fall And all that's left is shifting in the sand You're out of time, you're out of place Look at your face, that's the measure of a man Like a glove These dirty streets You learn to love So welcome back My long lost friend You've been to hell And back again And God alone knows How you crossed that span Back on the beach the start, trust in your heart, that's the middle of a man. That's Elton John singing The Measure of a Man, one of the rare times he would perform a song that he didn't write. Though Rocky V was a box office success and a fitting end to the Rocky saga, at least at the time, no one thought about rewarding Mencken for his contribution. The only award nomination he received was a Golden Raspberry Award for the worst song of 1990. Alan Menken didn't win that award, though. The song He's Coming Back from the movie Repossessed took the raspberry for worst song of 1990. One year after his successful album for Batman, Prince starred in a quasi-sequel to Purple Rain called Graffiti Bridge. There were many more songs in Graffiti Bridge than there were in Purple Rain, but none of them found an ounce of the success that even the worst song in Purple Rain found. That meant no Oscar nominations for Prince again, and probably no one in the music branch even gave the songs from Graffiti Bridge a second listen after the film came out in November 1990. Even the Hollywood Foreign Press Association thumbed its collective nose at the Graffiti Bridge songs. Four of the five Golden Globe nominees for Best Song would eventually become Oscar nominees a month later. Only Somewhere in My Memory was left out, replaced by What Can You Lose from Dick Tracy, giving Stephen Sondheim two Globe nominations that year. Perhaps trying to bring back the era of number one songs winning awards, the Golden Globe went to Blaze of Glory at the January 19, 1991 ceremony. Bon Jovi didn't thank Emilio Estevez for bringing him into the project or anyone associated with the movie. He would have had a chance to remedy that a month later at the Grammy Awards when his song was nominated for Best Song from Visual Media, alongside Under the Sea and Kiss the Girl from The Little Mermaid, as well as two songs from Dick Tracy, Sooner or Later, and More. If John Bon Jovi thought both movies would split votes with each song, thereby giving him the Grammy, he was wrong. Under the Sea won the Grammy, which didn't signal that Blaze of Glory was dwindling in his Oscar chances. It still had a lead over the others due to a Golden Globe win and the fact that it was a number one song. It was the first nominated song to reach number one on the Billboard chart in three years, and remember that the Academy had a seven-year streak of giving the Oscar to a song that went to number one. So with the Academy Awards ceremony set for March 25, 1991, John Bon Jovi was the only nominee who also had to worry about performing on the stage of the Shrine Auditorium. Producer Gil Cates almost managed to get all of the original performers to the show, 
but Meryl Streep was six months pregnant with her fourth child and wasn't coming to the show, even to find out if she would win the Best Actress award. In her place was country star Reba McIntyre, who sang it very well and knew how to put a great country spin on I'm Checking Out. Many years later, Streep thanked McIntyre for singing at the Oscars and doing it, quote, much better than I ever could, end quote. I'm not sure how many of the original song nominees were in attendance that night, but I know Stephen Sondheim wasn't. I know this because when Anne Margaret and Gregory Hines announced that sooner or later won the Oscar, there was only a shot of Madonna applauding in the audience as Anne Margaret congratulated Sondheim and walked off the stage. It's likely Sondheim was in New York licking his wounds after his newest stage musical, Assassins, closed off Broadway after 71 performances. And he probably thought Blaze of Glory was going to win. Madonna, sitting in the audience with Michael Jackson, was happy that something she was connected with won an Academy Award, even if it didn't give her the chance to hold the Oscar. Remember that she had written a few original movie songs in the 1980s, all of which were shot down by the Academy. I think the win for Sooner or Later was the Academy's way of telling Madonna to stick with singing. Since Dick Tracy was produced by Disney's live-action film distribution arm Touchstone Pictures, we can count the win for Sooner or Later as Disney's second consecutive win in original song. Not since 20th Century Fox won twice in a row in 1954 and 1955 has a studio won consecutive original song Oscars. Also for the second year in a row, a songwriter mostly known for Broadway stage work won the Academy Award for original song. So would this become a trend for Oscar songs moving forward? And does this mean Hollywood executives are going to start plucking songwriters from Broadway to write the next big Oscar-winning song? We'll have to find out on upcoming episodes of the Best Song Podcast to see if that happens or if pop music will reign supreme again. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode of the Best Song Podcast. We'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.